Back home again in dear old Elmhurst, and it seems that I can see the gleaming French porch lights still burning bright through the seven wards of trees. The backyard skunks send all their fragrance through the streets I used to roam. When I dream about the moonlight on her salt creek, how I long for my great big Elmer's home. Golly! And now, podcasting from a two-person hot tub, high atop the Butterfield Park water tower, it's the E-Town Lowdown, created by Robbie and Rick. And now, your handsome hosts, P.K., Rick, and their highly paid intern, Malort. Welcome to another edition of the E-Town Lowdown. I'm here with my buddies, P.K. and Malort. How are you guys? Great. Very good. Good to be back. In the uh, the hot tub, it seems a little cool tonight, doesn't it? It's chilly out here. It's kind of crowded, too, as usual. A little extra foam. Foam? <laughs> What's that from? I don't know. You, you have some body wash you started using or what? Maybe. <laughs> so tonight, we have a special guest. He is recently retired from Elmhurst University. He was the chair of the music department. I think I have that right, and he can correct me if that's not right. Pete Griffin um, had a long career in music, ended up here in Elmhurst, so we're going to hear his story. Welcome, Pete. Good to be here. So you ended up in Elmhurst, so we're going to get that whole trail of how you ended up here. Tell us where you grew up. Uh, I actually grew up in Evergreen Park, uh, down near Oak Lawn, and 95th and Western is the, the local trademark intersection if you will where the old evergreen plaza was so i'm feeling like malort is yeah. in your backyard he's ready to I, jump out I, of yeah. his seat <laughs> i knew i liked this guy for a reason i would take Salsa the guy. take the bus from blue island to my hometown straight down western to the plaza as a kid oh yeah you yeah. bet you know in the south suburbs you know like palos heights it's just palos and orland park orland he's from blue got it right we just and dropped I the understand. island. Right. And, he, and he's from Evergreen. Right. That's right. So Evergreen Park, um, grew up in a small family, large family? Uh, there were, I had two brothers and my parents, so just uh, five of us in a, in a house there. Where'd you fall in line? In the, I'm the bro- firstborn. So you're the old, the old guy. I'm the old, yeah. <laughs> yeah. B- bungalow, Pete? Uh, no, it was a, it's a brick house. Not a big brick house, but... Um, it's a great song. Like the Commodores? Yeah. But, uh, you know, a post-war type sure. brick house. How about where'd you go to high school? I went to Evergreen Park High School. Yeah, that makes sense. There you go. And it, was that just for people who lived in Evergreen Park, or did it serve other towns there, too? It was primarily Evergreen Park and a few within the fringe, so to speak. What do you remember doing in the neighborhood when you were a kid, like before you were in high school? Uh, before in high school, we lived on a, a dead-end block, and it was the Grand Trunk Railroad that was at the end of the, the block. So we'd play in the ditch a lot. Um, we'd uh, When the trains came by, you know, like stupid kids, we would throw rocks at the train and realize that was kind of not smart and stop doing that. And um, we would just – we'd play street football. We'd play um, 
baseball and um, we used to call it fast pitch against the wall yeah. uh, at, the, at the grade school that was about a block and a half over. A lot of things like that. We were always outside. And back in the day when you had to make your own fun, right? Yeah, yeah. And it was easy to do. Kids today not not quite uh, understanding how that how that worked, and I think we were better off for it, don't you? Just got to get outside. How early did you get involved with music? Um, fifth grade really started to. I, that's when I joined band in, in fifth grade. First instrument. First instrument was baritone horn, and I stuck with it. Added trombone later. Um, but um, yeah, started in fifth grade at Southeast School. Jim Gilworth was the the person getting me involved with that, and then um, uh, that just grew from from there pretty quickly uh, into junior high, went to Central Junior High, and then into high school. Just always heavily involved in the in the bands, musicals. Your, did your parents have a musical background? Uh, my mom played piano, and my dad played flute, but neither one of them uh, formal training. You know, my dad played uh, flute when he was a little kid. Um, his, my grandparents were both uh, from Ireland and they, the, the, the Irish flute, he would, he would play for, uh, uh Irish dancing, uh, a fesh he would play for, he would play for relatives all the time, much to his chagrin. But, um, there was a lot of times where, um, uh, he, he would, he played the flute pretty much all the way up until he passed. Uh, he just loved the flute. He loved to play Irish music and my mom played piano and, um, that's what she did as a as a hobby too. She just loved to play and loved classical music, both of them. When you say Irish flute, is that a type of flute or a way to play? Well, the I, flute? I should say Irish music. Okay. Yeah, and there are different types of flutes, obviously. Obviously. Yeah. So he I mean he had some some open hold flutes and then he had some um uh, flutes with keys and various things like that. He had a number of flutes over the years. Hey, Rick, yes. a flute with no holes is not a flute. And a donut without a hole is a Danish. There you go. <laughs> that was good, Malort. So hang on a minute here, Peter. Are you trying to tell me now that there were Irish people on the south side of Chicago when you were growing up? Just a few. Yeah. So you've been to a parade or two, huh? Um, just a few. Just a yeah. few, right? <laughs> you and me both. That's right. So did they have a marching band in, in uh, junior high? In junior high, no. In high school, yes. And uh, I was in that, and I was a drum major for a couple years. Um, and then when it came time to go to school uh, for um, for college purposes, uh, I had no intention of majoring in music. I wanted to be involved in in um, in political science and and things along that line, things happening in government, not necessarily the elected positions, but the service positions within state, federal uh, governments. Um, what brought that to your attention? Uh, it just interested me, hmm. you know, and it's, uh, um, I had uh, an uncle who was a state representative hmm. as well, and it was just always interesting, some of the things that uh, were always going on, whether you agreed with them or not. Um, but it, the, you knew that there was a staff behind them and it was that staff and that idea of what the people who really make the things work. It was what I wanted to be part of. So I was accepted at the University of Iowa, uh, and I was going to go to Iowa. And then my parents said, have you thought about doing something in music? And um, I applied to Illinois and 
got into Illinois and with every intention of not being a music major uh, after the first year. Uh, so you actually entered as a music major and you thought you were going to change your major, yeah. in other words? Yeah. And then, um, then what happened was I had such a good time in music and I'm going, you know what, you can do this for a living? And I thought, okay, let's just stick with it. So I did. So backing up really quickly, did, um, did you have a job as a kid at all? I did. Um, I did, had a paper route for a while. Um, hated it, but it was something. And then I actually worked in uh, in the Evergreen Plaza on the south end of the plaza. There was a bank there. I can't remember the name of the bank, but my aunt worked there. And on the weekends, I would go and after hours, I would clean. <laughs> I cleaned the bank for a couple of years. And other than that, that was pretty much what I did. I feel like that might have been a Marquette Bank. I, I think you're right. Yeah, but that's stretching my memory now. Yeah, but no, but it's it's yeah. it, you know where it is. Yeah, exactly. So. Yeah, vividly. Were you involved in any sports or uh, you know other hobbies like cars or anything like that? Uh, sports. I ran track. I ran cross country. I played a little basketball. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, uh, other hobbies and things like that. I mean, I was just we were just always busy. Just a People basic, are, well-rounded guy. <laughs> <laughs> Sure. <laughs> Hanging out at Jansen's? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, Actually, Snyder's Red Hot. So oh, I yeah. It, so. Good call. You sell ciders are all yeah. alike. Yeah. They got these, their own code. These places have been there forever. They're, they're what you call the jewels of Chicago, right? That's right. Well, they're grocery stores, too. Anyway. <laughs> uh, <laughs> See, he's right with us here. <laughs> it's a whole different kind of jewels, but he knows. <laughs> so you go to U of I, Illinois, and you don't plan to stay in music, but you decide you like it. Right. What what um what musical ensembles or bands did you get involved with? Uh, I was in the marching band there for four years, um, and I was able to serve as a section leader for three of them. Um, I was in several of the concert bands. I was in the British Brass Band, a um, number of small ensembles on top of that. Just busy all the time playing. And, and so you majored in music, and that's what you got your degree in? My degree is in um, uh, music education, yeah. I got you. So, you know, you're a, let's say you're a junior or senior, and at U of I, you're a music major, music education. What did you see yourself doing at when you were, let's say, a junior? Uh, teaching at a high school somewhere. With a bachelor's yeah. degree, or did you yeah. know you were going to go beyond bachelors i had no clue at the time i mean you're just trying to get through the program at that point um but it was uh this that i would go out and teach and the concern was in the early 80s that there weren't a whole lot of jobs uh and i was able to uh when i got to the end of that uh program i was able to uh, actually find uh, a position out in um in a place called fowler colorado was my first job uh, I looked at some places in Illinois, and there just wasn't a whole lot uh, to be had, and um, um, it was just a, a hard time to to gain employment. In fact, I know of a few friends who never even got into it uh, that had graduated with music ed degrees. And We've got a sta- our stats guy looking up Fowler. Where's Fowler? Fowler is about 35 miles east of Pueblo, Colorado. Wow. And was that a university or a college or a high school or that was a junior high? It, it was everything. It was unit a, district. Yeah, <laughs> a Fowler uh, School District R4J, um, and I taught 
uh, is my first job. I'm fresh out. I taught f- uh, five through twelve instrumental, uh, seven through twelve vocal, and sixth grade general music in that position. Wow. You were the band leader. I was the music person in yeah. town. Yeah. And what? And and how long were you there? I just did uh, three years there, and then um, I left and did my master's degree, uh, in the, over the course of the next year. Uh, and then I went back to Colorado, but this time to Colorado Springs, right. and I taught there for a few years, uh, and then realized I wanted to keep going and started a doctoral program uh, after that, and um, yeah. Back in Illinois? Yeah, I did all three degrees at Illinois, um, in part because uh, I had different key teachers each time so on on my instrument i had three different teachers as far as the directors that i worked with i had different people some of the people i worked with um uh, i i didn't uh get to on earlier degrees but i did get to with a doctoral degree uh and then i had i was a uh, teaching assistant both times too so i taught uh conducting and supervised student teaching uh, and this was all like in the 80s Roughly, I, um, that was uh, eighty six seven, yeah. and then in from ninety to ninety two. How did you enjoy the Colorado lifestyle while you were out there? Uh, at first, I loved it, yeah. and then because I had visited quite a bit, um, so teaching out there was like, okay, great, I'm gonna be up in the mountains, da da da. Well, yeah. no, you got to work. <laughs> so <laughs> it's not all a ski vacation. No, right? it's not. And although we did do some of that, well, thirty but, miles east of. Pueblo's got to be jackalopes and tumbleweed. What, what's there? Uh, no jackalopes, but there are <laughs> there are um, there are uh, scorpions and there are tarantulas in the desert there. Ooh. But I lived in Pueblo, and then uh, I lived in Colorado Springs. So, um, and then I played with groups too. I, I played with the uh, Pueblo Symphony Orchestra. There's a Pueblo Municipal Band. There was a group called the Pueblo Fusion Band. Which or the fusion orchestra, which we got together a few times, but then in in the uh, in December we would get together and um, uh, play with. Um, there was a an, um, was it the Tulsa Ballet came to town to do the Nutcracker, and we were the pit orchestra for that. So we would do mm. things like that. I know the director of the Pueblo West Community Band. I work for his family, as a matter of fact. Fact. I was wondering True. seriously. How- yeah. Is yeah. our friend George down in that area? Or? Yeah, his uh, his son George is is a music teacher in Pueblo West, and I don't know how far I it's a few miles from Pueblo. I think because I don't know if you're familiar. That might not even been built up when you were out there. Not really. Pueblo's yeah. really grown since I left. How far is Pueblo from uh, Denver? Um, roughly a hundred miles. Not okay. quite even. Hmm. Interesting. It's closer to Colorado Springs, if I recall. You were a trendsetter. <laughs> I needed a job. <laughs> How did you find that? Uh, I actually found it. There's there's different. Um, that, don't forget, there's no websites or anything. Yeah, right. So right. I had uh, some friends at different colleges that we compared um, uh, advertising sheets that they got from different places, and and there were a couple of them from Colorado. I'm huh. like, well, I'll give it a shot. Nice. So he said cool. he's got his doctor. Do we, do we have to call him Dr. Jill? I mean, Dr. Griffin? Doctor. Do we have to call you Dr. Griffin? Doctor. I hope doctor. not. <laughs> doctor, doctor. <laughs> well, I want to be formal. I don't want to offend you. So what 
Wait, we're talking about bubbles in the pool and you're worried about being formal? <laughs> He's on to us now. Well, do you ever get grief about being Peter Griffin? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I would yeah. imagine. Every yeah. time I travel, too, it's like uh, uh, TSA, every single time, it's like, oh, you know that TV show? It's like, yeah, I wish it were not on the air. You know? <laughs> in, in our little communication, I put, pulled up a picture of Peter Griffin, and the first one was him with a bottle, drinking a bottle of booze, so... You know, it's got to be a tough handle to carry. It is. It is. <laughs> so are you even a fan of the show? No. It's it's no. interesting you say that because my I have a son named Ross, and we named him Ross while the show Friends was popular. And I had people saying, oh, you must be a big fan of the show Friends. I've never seen it. Now, I have since, but, you know, the people that, have to make a comment. I'm sure they do all the time to you. Just like PK just did. Well, and I, Kendall and Chloe, and then all the Kardashians come along. That's embarrassing. Right? Who was there first? Well, I didn't even know about them. So, anyway, let's the, move on. I, it's not about me. Yeah, I just named one of my kids after Star Wars characters. It's much easier. <laughs> Chewbacca? No, right. That. The Force is strong with that one is all I have to say. He is. So, you get your doctorate. Where do you go next? Uh, I went to the um, University of Wisconsin-Madison. Madison. Yeah. Packer fans up there, right? Lots of them. Yeah. Fun place, though. Yeah. It's a great campus. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's beautiful. I have a little experience with the place, and they integrate well with the city. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Everybody's involved. Pretty cool. What did you do at first when you went up there? I was assistant director of bands, and then um, with that, I worked with the marching band and the uh, basketball, volleyball. Uh, I had a concert band, and then I taught another class. Uh, who, who was the director when you got there? Mike Leckron. Yeah, he's a fun guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why do you know that? Have any? Well, because I have eight years of experience at uh, Wisconsin, and. Um, he he wrote eight years worth of checks <laughs> <laughs> to Madison. But but so well so the daughters on the dance team the dance team dances to the music of the band the marching band that's what I wanted the people to know well I didn't know how much we wanted to disclose here but anyway that's uh, so eight eight years of Mike Lacrone and um, it was a lot of fun I mean they're really band does a lot for the university yeah it does yeah. it really does. So is he director of all bands or just uh, marching band? Well, director of bands is a, a title that you basically lead the department or lead that area. So you'll you'll do one or two bands if you're director of bands, and then you have other people who do the others. I didn't even really think about it, about there being more than one band. I mean, there are multiple bands within the university, right? Yeah. Yeah. What, like like what? What would they be? Obviously, the marching band. What well, else is there? The marching band, and then the basketball band's a separate unit. Although a lot of people who play in marching band also do basketball. Gotcha. Um, then you have another. This is at Wisconsin, and then there was a smaller group that did uh, women's volleyball and women's basketball. And we played in the old field house for those. That was yeah. always fun. Um, Hockey too. Hockey too. Is up that there. A, is that a different band? That's a different band as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it's a, it, it might be from a pool of musicians. Yeah, right. So some crossover. Right. Yeah. Right. And then, uh, because you're using, you know, it's, it's like with a sport, you have those people who are on that team with the bands. We have this pool of musicians that we're drawing on to try and cover a yeah. lot of things. Yeah. And we have to be careful not to, 
um, abuse that, uh, that they're not uh, doing too many things. And we have to watch out for them that they're not, I mean, they could, you know, some of them think they could major in band. You can't do that. You have to, you have to go to school, you have to go to class, you have to study, you have to do yeah. all these other things. And then the band, even though you're getting credit for it, is not the only thing you're doing. So you can't just volunteer for everything and, well, and it, think you can It can, can be a that. full-time job on top of your full-time job of going to school, yeah. is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. it never ends. But they actually really do bring a lot of spirit to all those events. We've been to many different kinds of events there, and they really make a difference. Yeah. At least at Wisconsin, and I'm sure they do at other places. So if yeah. you're directing a band of students, do those students have instructors on their individual instruments outside of the band director? Um, the drumline does in the marching band. Um, as far as the concert band goes, if you have music majors – then they're studying with someone who teaches a studio of that particular instrument. Um, so th the answer to your question is yes and no. Some of them do, some of them don't. Uh, and it would be in a private setting. Um, um, the things I did at Illinois sometimes, if, if, if I needed some help with a particular section, I would talk to the person in the School of Music who taught that instrument and see if we could get them to come over and spend a little time working on specific things that we wanted to, to work on. And most of them were just general principles of playing. Uh, a lot of people, when they play, they'll either use uh, a brass instrument in particular. They'll use not enough air and too much pressure. Well, it's not good physically for you, so you have to teach them how to get the same kind of sound or a better sound by producing it in a more um, relaxed way. Uh, otherwise, if there's too much pressure, um, it can cause all kinds of problems. In other words, Malort, don't be a blowhard. Right, exactly, because then you <laughs> won't have your best version of Sir Duke. There you go. <laughs> so you've got three music-related degrees from Illinois. You played in bands in Illinois, and now you're at Wisconsin teaching, directing. Was the program at Wisconsin very different than the program at Illinois from what you saw? Uh, yes and no. Uh, different in some ways and similar in others. Um, basically, uh, when it came to athletic bands, those bands were there to support those teams in any way they could. Uh, and uh, when it came to the concert bands, there was um, um, there was there were more people and greater depth at Illinois than there was at Wisconsin, um, and it was just the 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 way it was put together. So, um, you know, you had the, the wind ensemble and then you had symphonic band, then a concert band, and then a couple of other bands at Wisconsin. And then we had seven concert bands at, at Illinois. Is one better than the other? It depends on what you're doing. So um, uh, it, a lot of it is what do you what are you trying to get out of the program? So what is the director of bands leading this program to be? And then everyone works in that general kind of like a head coach. You, know, you can't have someone just go off on a tangent and do whatever they want. You've got to have a program of study and a, a playbook, if you will, that this is what we're aiming for goals. So one so one director could be more say classically oriented versus another director that could be more support the sports. Absolutely. Or marching band oriented. Yeah. Right. But yeah. that's why you, you have, in most cases, you'll have that director of bands, and then you have the 
as I was the Illinois director directors. of athletic bands. Yeah, yeah. So my my primary job in my uh, last five years at Illinois was I was director of athletic bands and that's what I had and to it, As a director on. of bands, how much is your how much of your work is um, administrative versus musical? Um, and in that order, probably 60-40, sometimes even 70-30, depending yeah. on what, what needs to be done. It's yeah. a lot of work. Yeah. Uh, a, a lot, lot of, of behind-the-scenes work. Yeah, yeah I mean, a lot of people. It's the people thing. Yeah. When's the last time you were at on campus at Wisconsin? long time ago or um, Actually, I was there for a football game uh, back in September. Uh, my daughter is a freshman at ISU and plays in the marching band there. ISU played Wisconsin at Wisconsin and took the band, so we went up and saw oh, cool. the two bands. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah so did cool. did you jump around during the third quarter? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> did they have any tradition? I know that started in 1998. You were you were left gone, by then, yeah. but did they have any traditions like that back then? That uh, the, f- the fifth quarter was the big deal. That's a huge that thing. Yeah. 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 You guys know what that is, right? Does- I, I do, but Pete, why don't you describe well, it? Well, the yeah. fifth quarter is basically. Um, it's it's uh it's an after game party yeah on the field so the the band will play different tunes the audience sings they dances they dance the band dances they sing um, and this goes on for about twenty five minutes or so Dance maybe team. a half an hour cheerleaders everybody yeah <laughs> yeah he's that, all he's all about his dance team well well I mean, sure they're, they're but out they're, there they're yeah. part of they're they part a, of the marching they had a lot band of, they had a lot of color to the whole thing yeah, yeah. and uh, but everybody's out there yeah and then if there's a visiting band then the visiting band is invited onto the field as well so it's it's just a it's a fun time um it, it its roots go back to when um when when Wisconsin wasn't playing so well and there wouldn't be many people in the stands, yet people would show up towards the end of the game to be part of the fifth quarter. And, uh, and you just, got them to stay yeah. <laughs> and have some fun. That's right. Yeah. And overall, did you enjoy your time at Wisconsin? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I got to say one thing about the jump around, even though you weren't there for that. It's fun to see when the opposing team actually starts to participate in that. Right. I mean, you talk about the band getting the crowd going. When they get the crowd going so much that it gets the opposing team jumping around, that's pretty fun. And you have to, I think that started too after they renovated the stadium. So you needed that extra support. Support. <laughs> well, I'm serious. Yeah, 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 no, I know. I've heard about that. Yeah. yeah. And being from the land of Lincoln. Did you come to appreciate the folks up in Wisconsin? Of course. <laughs> the same way they did me. <laughs> no. um, was it a fun rivalry between you and them? It, it absolutely was. Yeah. Yeah. And but you didn't become a Packers fan, did you? No. Okay. That's not possible. <laughs> wow. Oh, they, oh yeah. They were, they were very welcoming to, to me. Yeah. Nice folk up there. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back on the lowdown. Hi, this is the Sandwich King, Jeff Morrow, and you're listening to the E-Town Lowdown with PK, Rick, and Malort. These guys are a bunch of meatballs. <laughs> and now, it's time for another installment of One Ponce a Time with Lowdown legend PK and his overly enthused yesteryear expert friend, Elmhurst History Museum director, Dave Oberg. Hey, boys and girls. Let's talk about the right stuff. 
just so you know, this is the first job I ever had when I was 12 years old. I worked at one of the Frank Lloyd Wright houses in Elmhurst. But one pounce of time, did you know that Frank Lloyd Wright made his mark on the city of Elmhurst? While the famous architect's offices might have been nearby Oak Park, he designed a number of homes and buildings in the western suburbs, including Elmhurst. His influence can also be seen in the works of Walter Burley Griffin, a protege and former Elmhurst resident who designed a number of buildings here before moving halfway around the world with his wife, Marion Mahoney Griffin, to establish a firm in Australia and design the new capital city of Canberra. Okay, so let's take a, a deeper look. Frank Lloyd Wright designed a stately home for Frank B. Henderson and Elmhurst in 1901 during his very short-lived partnership with H. Webster Tomlinson. The home at 301 South Kenilworth bears many of the hallmarks of Wright's Prairie School style. These include the low-pitched roofs with deep overhanging eaves we expect, an emphasis on the horizontal over the vertical, reinforced by rows of casement windows and horizontal lines, and use of natural materials like wood and stucco. The inside features Wright's breathtakingly modern open floor plan anchored by a central hearth. The home is still a residence today and was placed on the National Register of Historic Places in 2002. More recently, residents of the home granted a preservation easement to the Frank Lloyd Wright Building Conservancy in fall of 2019, which will help protect the residents in perpetuity. Now, Wright's influence in Elmhurst extended beyond that single home. An Elmhurst teenager named Walter Burley Griffin became enamored with architecture after visiting the Columbian Exposition in 1893 in Chicago. After studying at the University of Illinois, Griffin would go on to work as a draftsman for several Prairie School architects in the Chicago area and eventually would land a job with Frank Lloyd Wright himself in Oak Park. There, he worked with Marion Mahoney, a pioneering female architect who would become his partner in marriage and in business. Now, while working at Wright's firm, Griffin undertook several independent residential commissions, one of which was the Emory House at 281 Arlington in Elmhurst. This was a wedding gift from William Emory Sr. to his son upon marrying the daughter of Thomas Wilder in 1903, and it was the first of three houses that Walter Burley Griffin would design in Elmhurst. After leaving Wright's firm in 1906, Walter Burley Griffin would later design the Sloan House at 248 Arlington in 1910 and the Beggs House at 296 Elm in 1911. Now, sadly, the Beggs House was demolished in 2002, but the other two residences still proudly stand in Elmhurst today. In addition to residential projects, Griffin also designed the clubhouse for the Elmhurst Golf Club and the stables for the Wilder Estate. Outside of Elmhurst, more than 100 homes across the Midwest are attributed to Walter Burley Griffin's practice. Now, Walter and Marion's careers reached new heights in 1912 when they were awarded the opportunity to design the new Australian capital of Canberra after submitting a proposal to an international contest the previous year. They left America for Australia in 1914 to oversee the implementation of the plan, and they closed their stateside practice in 1917 when it became apparent that their business in Australia would be more than enough to keep them busy. The Griffins would go on to a successful career in the land down under, as well as in India, before Walter's untimely death in 1937. Walter Burley Griffin left a signature architectural footprint on several continents, and although several of his local buildings are no longer standing, his ties to Elmhurst stand as an important facet of the Griffin legacy and proof that Elmer still has the right stuff. Ladies and gentlemen, we are Steve Washington and the Retro Rocket All-Star. And when we're not rocking in Southern California, we listen to the E-Town 
back here on the lowdown, and I was just thinking, you know, Pete mentioned in the first segment that he was a drum major in high school. And Malort, he's kind of a drum major. We call him the dumb major of the Elmhurst Armpit Orchestra. I don't know if you knew that or not. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he's, uh, he's a class act. Wait, you know that? Nobody yeah, I think I told. I yeah, think he I told. told him. I was gonna say you shouldn't. <laughs> you shouldn't know that. No, nobody knows that. Sometimes he's dressed in a jumpsuit like Elvis. You never know how he's gonna be dressed. But, uh, but let me tell you, he's there. And you know how he got the job? Because he, he was, was in there. the marching band one year in high school. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Made me overqualified. There you go. <laughs> so it's time for my favorite segment, the E Town Lowdown Mowdown. Well, we're going to try to mow down Pete to his very core. You ready, Pete? Sure. Okay, these are pretty much either-or questions or yes or no. J.S. Bach or Catherine Bach? J.S. Bach. No. Wow. Symphony or orchestra? Orchestra. Roosevelt or Roosevelt? Roosevelt. Golf or tennis? Ooh, tough one. Um, Golf. Beer or wine? Beer. Bono or Bono? Bono. Mr. Holland's Opus or Coda? <laughs> uh, Mr. Holland's Opus. Favorite branch of the military? Army. Tom Cruise or Tom Hanks? Tom Hanks. Sometimes or Tribune? Oh, Trib. What? South Cider. What? Uh... I like the old daily news. I mean, there there you go. (laughs) Now we're talking. Coal miner's daughter or sweet dreams? Coal miner's daughter. What was your first record album? Oh, my gosh. Repeat the question. (laughs) We've stumped him. (laughs) Wow, I have no idea. Um I really don't know. I'm okay. <laughs> He's going to take a pass. Appetizers or hors d'oeuvres? Uh, hors d'oeuvres. Bublé or Connick Jr.? Connick Jr. Invisibility or super strength? Invisibility. Elvis Costello or Elvis Presley? Elvis Presley. Bach or Beethoven? Beethoven. Country or Western? Western. Dinner or supper? Dinner. Bass clef or treble clef? Bass clef. The cow sills? It's all about or, the bass. <laughs> <laughs> the cow sills or the partridge family? Partridge family. <laughs> Bohemian Rhapsody or Rocket Man? Oh, Bohemian Rhapsody. Swimming pool or lake? Lake. Blue Jay or Belted Kingfisher? <laughs> uh... And you know about the belted kingfisher, what they're trying to do. You bet. Yeah. Uh, That's why you asked. <laughs> uh, um, the blue jay. Dogs or cats? Dog. James Brown or James Taylor? James Brown. Banjo or, or steel guitar? Banjo. Rockies or Smokies? Rockies. I, this is stupid. Cub, <laughs> Cubs or socks? Gosh, it's a socks. <laughs> <laughs> After that newspaper question, I wasn't 100% sure, so thank you for that. Dion Warwick or Celine Dion? Dion Warwick. That was a right answer, by the way. Bacon or sausage? Bacon. <laughs> a Fallon or Kimmel? 
Um, Fallon. Satchmo or Dizzy? Satchmo. Favorite pizza place? Vito and Nick's. 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 Well, I, I do like Vito and Nick's. Um, Beggars? So do we. Beggars. <laughs> and the, see, but the problem with pizza is, you know, it's like, well, okay, what kind of crust do I want? What kind yeah. of sauce do I want? Who's got this kind of sausage, that kind of sausage? Sausage, for sure. See, they're, for all sure. Different, they're all different meals, as we understand in Chicago. Okay, so I'm going to go back to my roots. I'm going to say Los Angeles pizza in Evergreen Park. Well done. Deserves a road trip. Is that your question? No, it's Scott's. Or oh. Malort's. Okay, so but it deserves me. a road trip. Stump fiddle or lager phone? <laughs> lager phone. <laughs> the book or the movie? The movie. Should men wear sandals? Absolutely. <laughs> Spock or Scotty? Oh, Scotty. So then Star Wars or Star Trek? Star Trek. Okay. The original. All right, here's the most difficult one you're going to get. Marianne or Ginger? <laughs> Marianne. <laughs> Wrong answer. Want to try again? Nope. <laughs> well, he's not going to get 100. Tyler Hardwood. Hardwood. <laughs> it's a great follow-up question. Yeah, just thinking. It's crazy. <laughs> Sofa or Couch. Couch. Brass or woodwinds? Oh, brass. Shakespeare or Harlequin? Uh, Shakespeare. Lefty or righty? Left. Hmm. Okay, I'm going to piggyback on that one. Which shoe do you put on first, left or right? Uh, you should put the right on first. Huh. Real grass or artificial turf? Real grass. Spring or fall? Fall. Rocky Road or Cherry Garcia? Rocky Road. Buddy Rich or Neil Peart? Buddy Rich. Walking or bicycling? Mm. Walking. Your favorite sport? Baseball. French fries or onion rings? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) It's one of those where am I at questions. Um, Fries. Big city or country? Big city. Beach or mountains? Beach. McDonald's or Burger King? Uh, Burger King. Doc Hollywood or Doc Severinsen? Doc Severinsen. Amen. Ping pong or pool? Pool. Pay Ringo less, yes or no? Pay Ringo less? Yes. All right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> just like Lauren Michaels. <laughs> Somebody should explain that to the crowd. You know, you almost had a perfect score, except for that Ginger Marianne thing. I don't know. I'm going to nick well, him on the, the choice of newspaper, too. No, no. I'm all for that. So, uh, See, I, I, the Daily News was, uh, was Can it we get 76 a, it ended. The, or the crowd like needs yeah. to know why pay Ringo less. Because he's worth less than the other three. It's, a, it's an old Saturday Night Live skit where... The producer, Lauren Michaels, in an attempt to bring the Beatles on the show, solicits them on air saying, we'll pay you $5,000 to do three songs, I think it was. And he had a check right there. And he had a check in his hand, and he said, go ahead, pay Ringo less. I don't care. (laughs) So good good job, Pete. You got an A-, and we'll take another quick break. We'll be right back.
Hi, this is pro football journalist Matt Bowen. When I'm in the mood for Malort, it needs to be in a hot tub with PK and Rick. The E-Town Lowdown. My God, these guys are horrible. Bet my money on a Bob Dale nag. The staff and management of the E-Town Lowdown would like to assure our more sensitive listeners that our food critic Sal is really half Italian. His mother is from Poland and his father is from the great country of Italy. We hope you will enjoy and not be offended. Hey friends, Slappy Sal here for the E-Town Lowdown. Here to tell you about a new place to eat in E-Town. It's called Primos Locos or Cugini Pazzi for all you Italians out there. Or uh, Crazy Cousins if you speak British. So Primos Locos opens up in the old McNally's location on York Road, just down the street from the tracks near downtown. So in honor of their name, I grabbed my two craziest cousins, Big Head Mike and Jimmy the Fish, and we headed over there to try it out. Instead of ordering separately, we just got a table full of tacos and we split them all up. You know what I mean? We had carne asada, al pastor, you know, pork shoulder, and chicken, And then we had to get fish for Cousin Jimmy. And you know what? They were all good. The people behind us looked like they ordered up some enchiladas and some fajitas, but I couldn't see on account of Mike's big head getting in my way. But it all smelled fantastic. The other thing about Primo's Locos is the drinks. Good quality tequila put in handcrafted cocktails like margaritas. And they also got Mexican craft beers on draft from a brewery in Chicago called uh, Hasa Humilde, or Humble House. Two brothers started it out in the Hermosa neighborhood. Great beers, you know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? So me and my Cugini sat around, ate some tacos, had some drinks. It was a good time. Legit, authentic food and nice environment. After we're done, me, Big Head Mike, and Jimmy the Fish argued about how to say Uber in Spanish. But ultimately, the driver came and took us back to the old neighborhood. So in summary, Primos Locos gets the Cugini seal of approval. Go enjoy some chips and guac, have a drink, and relax. Remember what Mark Twain once said. Part of the secret of success in life is to eat what you like and let the food fight it out on the inside. This is Slappy Sal reporting for the E-Town Lowdown. The E-Town Lowdown encourages you to like Explore Elmhurst on Facebook, a great resource so you too can be in the know when it comes to Elmhurst. Elmhurst, close to everything, unlike anything. Four of us are back here in the two-person hot tub high above Butterfield Park with our special guest, Pete Griffin. And now when we when we last left our discussion, Pete, you were telling us about your tenure at University of Wisconsin. And a, a few times you mentioned that you ended up back at Illinois. So tell us how you ended up back in Illinois after you did. And how many years were you at Wisconsin? I only did uh Two years at Wisconsin, and then Illinois invited me to apply for a position they had open. So I did, and I got it. And uh, but it, just ending at Wisconsin was some. We had some great travel uh, at Wisconsin because we. My first job at Wisconsin was to organize a trip for the band to um, Seattle because we were. Um, Wisconsin was playing Washington in Seattle. And it was UW versus UW, and some alum with a lot of money said, I want the UW band to go, hmm. and uh, they footed the bill, and off we went. So uh, it was great. I mean, we did a lot of really, really fun things on that trip, uh, including, and don't forget, this is pre-9-11, 
we did a halftime show on the flight deck of the carrier Nimitz. Oh wow! Uh, because That's awesome. uh, there were some some high-ranking people at Bremerton Air Station, Naval Air Station, that were Wisconsin grads, and uh, we wound up. And it was cool because we went up on the, the 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 plane lift from the hangar deck up to the flight deck, and as the band, they said, "Okay, now watch out for the railing." You're looking around, and it's like there's no railing. <laughs> what railing? <laughs> and, and and this buzzer comes on, beep beep beep, and this railing appears out of nowhere, and up to the flight deck we went, and uh, they had it all lined out, football field and everything like that. So That's cool. Very you, cool. You had brothers in the navy. Did any of them know Chet Nimitz? Um, no, no, <laughs> different era. <laughs> but, so, but another neat trip, yeah. not neat. It was really f- interesting. Was uh, we we the next year we were in um, the team was doing real well, uh, and we played um, Michigan State in Tokyo, and we took a band over to Tokyo, and um, uh, we won that game. And by winning that game, then we got into the Rose Bowl. So then we got back to the Rose Bowl. So I did this 14-hour flight back uh, to um, uh, Chicago and then into Madison. And then um, I got home, and the phone rings, and they say, don't pack your bags. You're going out to Pasadena tomorrow. So the next morning I was on another flight to Pasadena to do the prep work for the band going out to Pasadena. How was that experience going to Pasadena? Uh, It's fantastic. I've done it twice, and it's just amazing. I mean, it's just absolutely amazing. It's tiring as can be. Uh, and the, the amount of work that, that goes into bringing a band out there is immense. Uh, but the experience for everyone is is well worth it. Did the band just play Hey Baby over and over? <laughs> no. no. <laughs> like, the, it's like the York High Band and Mike Pavlik? I love Mike Pavlik. That uh, that parade's five and a half miles, and uh, and then you finish that parade, and then you got to go and do your whole game day experience uh, from so, there. So we made the trip out there, and it was a lot of fun. And what's funny is the first year my daughter was involved with the dance team, they were in the the football team was in the Rose Bowl, and we said, "Oh, they'll go again. We'll never. We don't need to go this time." Um, and then only eight years later did we get to go again, but. It was a, a lifetime experience. What kind of car did you ride in for the five and a half miles? Uh, my two feet. <laughs> <laughs> but the dogs were barking after that, huh? That was it's rough, you know, and it's but that parade route is lined with people the entire. I was going to say route. great, great fans, and it's got to yeah. get their, your adrenaline going, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I yeah. mean, and, and you know, they want you to play for five and a half miles. It's like you're not going to do that, but it's it's really. Um, when the weather was beautiful both times too so it's it's just this fantastic experience to know that one you're performing for a couple million people along the parade route and then how many more millions on on tv so in a marching band that's in a parade what instrument is the toughest to carry slash play that that long uh sousaphone or bass drum and sousaphone is the thing that everybody calls the tuba right yeah and uh, the bass drum, the problem with that is that the instrument is all in front of you. So the weight is in front of you with a, a harness that holds it onto your body. Or you can get a golf cart to pull it if it's really big. Like like eight feet big. So why does everybody call it the tuba? I don't get that. Well, it's just interchangeable. I mean, it's I mean, some the- people call it tuba. Some people call it sousaphone. 
when I was at well, Wisconsin, it, they called themselves the rhinos. But isn't the tuba the real, the thing that's smaller than the sousaphone? No, that's a euphonium. But a tuba is <laughs> is big. Euphonium. Yeah. Never yeah. heard of that. It's a baritone. Uh, uh, but the, the the tuba is a big instrument, and um, it has an upright bell. The sousaphone has that bell that, that the horn sits around you and the bell comes forward right so you project the sound forward potato patuba you know <laughs> that's right <laughs> so you you uh, you take an opportunity to get back to illinois and yeah what, what was your first job back in illinois exactly i was, I was assistant director of bands i uh worked with all the athletic bands i had one of the concert bands i conducted the um, the British Brass Band. <clears throat> I ran the um, uh, the marching band festival, and I ran the concert band festival, and I uh, taught conducting. So you have the wand when you're conducting, right? Yeah. What What is that wand made of? What is it? You know, we see the the person up there conducting, but what, is it made out of metal or wood? No, or? most of them uh, are it's made spaghetti. of wood. It's spaghetti, right? So you've conducted before. Um, no, they're made out of wood or fiberglass. Have you ever conducted Malort? Never. No? No. You do run a family. You True. conduct it every day. I do. And when you went back to Illinois, were you teaching? Yeah. And, those and in a classroom, too, or not? The the conducting was in a classroom. Okay. And, and um, do you... Do you have any students? Do you have a lot of students that ended up with music careers, or did a lot of them? Yeah, end quite up? a few. Yeah, yeah, and they're all over and at, at different levels. I mean, I've I've got students who who teach um, uh, elementary music band, um, and to me, those are the real heroes. That that's hard work, uh, and um, and, and making then, that first impression exactly, yeah. and then keeping them involved. Uh, and then students who went on, they're teaching in junior highs and high schools and colleges and, and uh, beyond that. I have some, uh, uh, the director of the Navy Band in Washington. Is, uh, so, um, and some of the universities around the country are former students of mine, too. I got a sidebar relative to um, your history here, but how, how much is music involved in your life now? Um. In a retired fashion? <laughs> yeah, right. Well, we'll get to that in a way, but I'm curious. Like, I mean, it's obviously been a big part of your life your whole life. It's, and it's now been, you're retired, so. Yeah, but it but it never leaves you, yeah, you I know? Would imagine. And, yeah. and my kids are involved in, right. in music. Um, and so I, I, you know, I get to enjoy what they're doing in music, uh, the things I've done. Um, I, and uh, you know, when I was at, Elmhurst and at Illinois too. I'm, I, and I'm still doing it now. I'll go and I'll I'll guest conduct for this. I'll uh, adjudicate that. I do clinics. You know, it's just things okay. appear. Sorry to diverge, but it, it just kept pressing in my mind. But it's it's still heavily involved. Yeah, cool. And um, how long were you in that that first role at Illinois? Just two years or three years? Um, longer than that. No, I'm, I'm no. thinking back to Wisconsin. Was two years. Well, Wisconsin was two years. I was at Illinois for 17 years. Wow. 
So how did your role evolve while you were there? Uh, at Illinois, I, I used to teach beginning conducting, and then that evolved into advanced conducting. So it would get into working with uh, people who were getting ready to go student teach, uh, who wanted some extra things done with conducting. Uh, and then I moved away from the festivals, running the festivals. So uh, in my last five years, I became director of athletic bands instead of assistant director. And as such, then I taught um, marching band techniques, which is basically how to run a marching band, how to write for a marching band, drill writing, um, and, and then all the legal issues and things that go along with, with uh, music and things like that, too. So being director of a marching band, how much of your brain power is used related to getting them to march versus play music? In other words, how, how much time did you spend as a director worrying about marching patterns as opposed to the actual piece? Well, it's a process. So once you start to um, the, the next year's season, the planning for that starts when the current season ends. So you start to think about what kinds of music. You get input from the band. What, what kinds of things would you like to do? What would we like to do as a unit? Then you come up with ideas and then, or themes for the show. And then you start to find music for it. And a lot of times we had music arranged for us. But in order to do that, then you've got to get copyright clearance to arrange and things like that. So there's some legal uh, issues involved there. Uh, and then you pay the fees. And, and then you um, then once all that's in place, then you have your drill writing teams to get together and start writing the drill uh, that matches the music. So there's count sheets and there's... Uh, timings and announcements and things all these things go into putting a show together so when you get to the fall then you pull out for well, we did a different show each week so you you pull out that week's charts and music and you're learning the music in different rehearsals and you're learning the marching and then you're putting the two together but in your early marching or your early music uh, rehearsals you're doing some really quick recordings of the arrangements that you have that you can then use as a reference recording when you're learning the drill. So it'd be like, okay, we learned these four or five sheets of drill. Let's go back to the beginning. Here's the music. Play along or go along with it. So we would do that in, in many, in order to quickly put it together. So it was all, always a process. As far as a percentage of timing, it, it, it's just you just did what you had to do in the time that you had. And then you just hoped that the weather was going to cooperate. I mean, there were, there were times where you'd lose a day or two uh, of marching because it was pouring rain. Uh, or if there was a thunderstorm, you know, you get that band off that field as soon as possible. Um, so it, it's, a, it's a process. It's, um, and then each week has its own process. And what's good about current drill writing programs is that you can animate it. You can see where there's collisions so you can rewrite it. Uh, before you get it to the band in the old days you just have to figure it out uh, but now you can do that and um, and then hope it all works does the uh, the illinois band has has some pedigree along with it right i mean it's a very isn't it one of the oldest marching bands yeah in the country if not the oldest of it's college one of, it's one of the oldest yeah it goes back to the 1890s so it's a pretty prestigious job yeah obviously um what what's the difference 
in a marching band at a Big Ten school that has a music school versus one that doesn't? Like, did you respect those schools that didn't have a music school that still had a marching band? Were they decent marching bands? I, I didn't care if they had a school of music or not. I just looked at the quality of the band. And, and you looked at were the students enjoying what they were doing? Were the directors involved with the, the whole aspect of it? And and trying to put the best product on the field? Were they supporting their team? Were they supporting their fans? Uh, uh, and was the quality good? And the, the prime example is Purdue. Purdue is a great band. Jake Gephardt is the director there jay is a wonderful teacher you know and it, it it never mattered in the marching bands whether you had a school of music or not it was always do they have a drum a it's a small drum? it's a small yeah. drum <laughs> maybe call it maybe even mid-sized it's only drum. eight feet not nine like right another one i know and i've actually worn one of the helmets and hit that drum the have at, you at purdue yeah they uh we'll they get don't... you into the major leagues yeah, one we, of these we, days. Yeah. <laughs> opportunity to upgrade we're, we're trying really hard. So were there any um, in, in the Big Ten? I mean, obviously, at Illinois, you were in the Big Ten. So most of the games were against Big Ten teams. Were there certain teams that um, traveled, their band traveled to Illinois almost every time they played at Illinois, like that you had good relationships with? Or how did that work? How did you determine which games you were going to travel to or another school determined when they were going to travel to Illinois? Well, a lot of things come into deciding that. One is the schedule. So is is was Illinois seen as a, um, a must-win kind of game, or was it one that they felt that their team could win uh, with without anyone else there? Uh, um, not that the band made the decision to win or lose, but it helps to have your own band there. Um, uh that's that's really interesting and then I mean, you, you know because you're yeah i'm hoping you it. make a dis- difference you do make and you a do difference. i know you do yeah. i know you do but i don't know if everybody realizes that and, and if you and then when you go and you're you're playing for fans outside the stadium and and what you find in the big 10 is that uh the the other um uh, crowds really enjoy seeing the other bands um so a lot goes into uh, whether you can go or not. I mean, if you, let's say you want to go to a school on October, we, some October weekend, well, if it's homecoming there, you're pretty, you're probably not going to get permission to go uh, from the school. So the school that you want to go to has all the say on whether you go. Um, and then uh, if you do get to go, um, then you, you'll get X amount of minutes for pregame, X amount of minutes for halftime. Because the, the the time is set uh, by the NCAA, so you can't get extra time unless the two teams agree to extra time. But then if you're on TV, I mean, it just goes on and on and on. So you'll get, say, five minutes at pregame, five or six minutes at halftime, and then you'll trade tunes in the stands. Uh, but if your team is doing really well, they, they do something really, you know, an interception or a fumble, then it's it's fair game. I bet I bet if you ask uh, a football player if it makes a difference, a lot of them might say it doesn't. But the reality is, if you ask a coach uh, that can separate himself from his ego, that he would say that the band makes a difference. It does. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and I would. I mean, it's the whole crowd thing. You get the crowd going, it gets the That's team right. going. That's right. Yeah. 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 And um, were there some travel? Um, trips that you made where 
the band didn't have seats in the stadium? Um, yes. So, uh, Michigan State is one. Uh, you're, you're along the, the wall. There's a concrete wall around the field, and you're sort of packed in into some temporary seats uh, in there. The um, whole band? Yeah. It's wow. all stretched out. And, and that's a normal thing? At, at Michigan State. Wow. Um, that's not very welcoming. No. And at <laughs> Illinois, visiting bands had seats in the stands. Yeah. Uh, at Indiana, we had seats, but they were up higher. So, I mean, there's, there's all kinds of psychological games yeah, right. that, that take place. Pink so toilets and all that. If you, so if you think about it, when you, if you're going to put an opposing band into the stands and you're going to put them up higher. Yeah. So when they finish pregame, what happens? Well, it's going to take them about half of the first quarter before they even get situated. Then midway through the second quarter, they have to reverse the process to get back down to the field for halftime. And then the beginning of the third quarter, they're back up. So you have now taken that band out of a quarter and a half of, of play. And um, th- that's whether that's done on purpose, we don't know. Uh, but it, it sure seems like it sometimes Did you ever too. get the sense that the coaches understood that? The, 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 you know, the athletic coaches. About placement in the in about the, about the band making having such an influence. Oh yeah, they, yeah. they understood quite a bit. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that, your comments awesome. earlier are right on. They, yeah. they know. Yeah, that's it, that's fascinating to me. And um, were there any places you just did not like to go in the Big Ten period? Other than you know Michigan State might be because you didn't have seats. I don't know. No, I'm, how about outside the Big Ten too? I yeah, mean, you, and outside we used to go to um, we would go to St. Louis. We went there for about five or six years in a row. We'd play Missouri, um, uh, and it was supposed to be a so-called neutral site, but you know, yeah, or nay, and uh, uh, whether it really was. But um, I'm not going to answer that question because I have a lot of good friends that still teach and do the marching bands in the Big Ten. Um, The bands themselves love it when you come, and there's always some sort of interaction between the bands, and uh, whether it be before the game or perhaps a morning rehearsal, um, after the game, before you head off on your buses and things like that, and that camaraderie is just really, really fantastic. Uh, It's not just in the Big Ten. It's everywhere. So could you say what maybe your favorite Big Ten team to travel to was or to have at Illinois for that matter? Or was that- uh, well, to have at Illinois, Purdue, Iowa, um, Michigan State, um, uh, Penn State. Yeah, a lot of them just great people when they brought their bands. Penn State in the Big Ten still? <laughs> yeah, I don't even know how many teams they're are going to get They're a big, year, you know? big 14 <laughs> team. <laughs> It's hard, it's hard to keep track of all the teams. That's really cool, though. I mean, it's a whole different element than I think a lot of people realize. So you went to some bowl games. Yeah. Um, any fun stories about going to bowl games? <laughs> Good um, or bad? Uh, yeah, there's some of both. Um, the, uh, Nobody's listening, so feel free to <laughs> sure. expound. It's, uh, <laughs> both of our listeners will enjoy the story. Well, the bowl games are, you know, they're an extra game, and – but that means extra rehearsals and a ton of planning, you know. And um, um, 
when you go to different places, um, you're working with – when you go to another team's football field, you're working with game management people who do this all the time. When you go to a bowl game, there are some of those people, and then there are some other people who are getting into the activity. So they're not um, experienced on the just matter-of-fact things, that things can go a little bit this way or that way. Um, so you have to be uh, ready for that and just sort of go with the flow. Um, uh, I know when we were in the uh, the Rose Bowl with Illinois in the parade, <clears throat> there was a um, – the band can only march at a certain clip. I mean, we're not going to go running down the street or – you know, pick up the tempo or of the cadence or anything like that. We're just going to go, and it's just going to be a flat-out kind of we're just going along. So there's a starter at the start of the parade who sends you out into the parade route, and you're supposed to just go and start. And the first mile or so of the uh, parade are, is where all the TV cameras are. And you make they make a big deal out of that turn onto Colorado Boulevard. It's not that bad. Uh, basically, I told the band, when you get there, go around it and make the turn the way we do on any other corner. And um, it was fine. Um, but what happened to us was the float in front of us was one of those had to stop and then transform into something else and got real tall and blah, 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 blah. So in the Rose Parade, the floats can only be a certain height. They can expand to another one. But there are uh, there's a bridge that they have to go under at the end of the parade um, that they can only be a certain height. So anything that they would grow into is fine, but they have to come back down to that. So we had in front of us this float that had to stop and then expand and go into this big thing. And I don't remember if it did fireworks or whatever, <clears throat> but it would stop. And then when it was done, it would come back down to its float size and then just scoot ahead and catch up with the rest of the parade. And the parade officials kept coming up to me, you got to move this band along, you got to move this band along. I said, we're fine. I said, you need to talk to those people and that thing who keep stopping and doing their little thing. I said, that's what's backing up your parade. Well, just keep them going, keep them going. It's like, okay. So I turned to the band and I kind of waved my arms a little bit, which meant absolutely nothing to them. And they were fine with that. And off we went. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> it was things like that. And then, you know, there's always logistics uh, that, that can go wrong. Um, that same trip, you know, we, we got the band up at four in the morning because we had to get to the parade start. Well, what they don't tell you is that where we're going to drop you off is still about a quarter mile walk to where the beginning of the parade is. And then you can do your half, five and a half miles, and then you're going to find your buses, and there's food at the end of the parade, which is great. But we're sitting there in these buses, and uh, I was in the, the first bus, and someone comes up and says, everybody in bus five is getting sick. I'm going, what do you mean they're getting sick? And I said, well, everyone's not feeling well. So I go back there, and I see that the buses are parked too close to each other. They're running. And they're yeah. running, yeah. and the fumes are going into bus five. I said, empty it, you know, and then everyone was fine. And then, you know, shut off the buses. We're just sitting here. <laughs> I mean, it was little things like that, but you have to monitor all of that. I mean, we've got 350 people. You have to be aware that, they're all have their own needs, things like that. But at the same time, you're there to take care of them too. 
Who did Illinois play in the Rose Bowl when you were? Uh, USC. And uh, they uh, how's their band? Their band is um, it's a good band. It's um, they have uh, certain traditions, uh, a lot of things that um, um, uh, I don't care for, you know. And uh, for example, they would. One of the things was they, they asked me, which way is your band coming off the field after pregame? And they had, and I told them, and I said, and so they had all of their bands, their band is like on the sidelines, like you're going to have to come through us because we're going on next. We're the home team this year and blah, blah, blah. And you're going to have to work your way through us like they're going to be real tough with you. And, and I found that out, that that was their plan. So what I did was I – um Went the other way. I changed the <laughs> ending of pregame to to say, okay, we're gonna do we're gonna do a, a four count turn. You're gonna play Oski Wawa down the field right into our fans, and as soon as you hit the end of Oski Wawa, I want you to just run and cheer, and it worked like a charm. Crowd went crazy. We had a blast. Nice. And they're standing on the sidelines, going, "I thought they were coming over here." Well, <laughs> no, we we figured it out. <laughs> who uh, who cued you in? A friend? You get you get information. Okay. <laughs> So obviously they had a bit of a reputation. Yeah. This is Mary Beth Harper, director of the Elmhurst Public Library, and you're listening to the E-Town Lowdown with your hosts, Robbie and Rick, but PK is the one with all the talent. Hello, Pete Kruger here from the Elmhurst Independent Newspaper. When I want a good laugh, I listen to E-Town Lowdown, even though Rick, Robbie, and PK podcast from a hot tub, they're three cool dudes. Okay, we're back from a quick break here on the lowdown with our special guest Pete Griffin, and want to get into uh, a subject which um, is controversial to some, but a lot of people are really passionate about Chief Alinawick, and I know that the Chief doesn't perform with the bands anymore, and I don't know if the Chief performed the entire time you were on campus or if stopped performing when you were on campus. But what what was that all about, and? Uh, you know the the fans love the chief, even even though he's not there anymore. They still call his name during the uh, when the band's playing. So what do you what do you know about when that stopped and did that was that a controversy for a long time? Uh, the controversy began um, probably in the early nineties. I'm gonna guess uh, where some people saw. Um, didn't like the idea that the tree, the chief was portraying um, the, these this culture that it wasn't being presented properly or didn't feel that it should be done at a football game or a basketball game and there were more issues around it uh, from from one side of the issue um, the history of, of the chief uh, is one that is rooted in traditions and in history of the the people who were uh, who lived in that area, um, and and the various tribes that were in that area too, and it was it, there's a lot to the history there that I won't go into now because it's fairly extensive. Um, but there you had a difference of opinions um, that were taking place, uh, and they were growing um, to the point that. Uh, the board of trustees, um, along with the NCAA, felt that 
uh, it was time for the chief to be uh, retired. And that happened uh, on my watch, if you will. I, uh, I was director of the Marching Illini at the time. Uh, I recall I was listening on the radio to the Board of Trustees um, meeting when they had the vote, and uh, they voted to retire the chief. And I looked out my window uh, of the band building in Champaign, and there was a TV crew that had started walking into the building looking for comment and stuff like that, which we did not provide uh, because it's like, this has just happened. Give us a chance to to think this out. And um, so it was, um, it was uh, um, an interesting time to be on campus and to be around alums. And um, uh, because you did have both sides of the, of the issue represented. Um, were there, there people involved in the band that um, uh, did not like the idea of the chief? Uh, I'm sure there were. And were there a lot that were supportive of the chief? I'm sure there were. Um, but our, our responsibility at the time was to present the music and the traditions of the university, and that's what we did. And did, um, as far as you remember, were there representatives of the Illini tribe that were, that were trying to get the chief sidelined, so to speak, or was it other groups for the most part? It was... Um, it, so the question is, is or was there an Illini tribe? Um, at the time, there were um, the, the Illini tribe was a group or a nation of tribes uh, of native, various Native Americans in the area. Um, and I believe it's the Peoria tribe that's now in Oklahoma that is the most related to that and there were issues back and forth as to whether this was the right thing to do um, the 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 um, the regalia that the chief wore at the time was presented to the university uh, by uh, Chief Frank Foolscrow of the Oglala Sioux in 1982 I believe it was um, so you had this influence from South Dakota, you had this influence from Oklahoma, and then you had all this stirring of activity in the middle as to which way should the university go, uh, and they chose to go with um, the retirement of the chief. And I'm guessing when all the alums... And there's more to it than that. I mean, it's, sure. it's extensive. Uh, that's sort of it in a nutshell. I'm guessing as time goes on and the alums frankly passed that remember the chief that the whole thing will kind of go away anyway. Right. It's possible. Yeah. So at some point in time around 2011, I believe you decided to come to Elmhurst. So tell us about how that came about. So in 2011, uh, it was January of 2011. I was at um, the Illinois music educators conference in Peoria and there were some people from uh, Elmhurst, then college, now university, who approached me and asked me to apply for uh, the position of chair within the music department uh, that was open at the time. So I did, and not exactly sure what I was going to get into. It just sounded interesting. I had 
thought about doing administrative work before. Um, uh, with the Marching Illini, there's a ton of it. I mean, and so it was just, okay, it's the next step. Um, and I um, interviewed for the position. It was, it was funny, when I came for the interview, um, I was actually working with some bands the week before up in the area, um, and I stopped by the campus to make sure I knew where I was going the next week because I was not familiar with the campus or, or where it was. And I stood, I, I parked my car, and I walked up onto the mall, and this thought hit me that, oh my gosh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get this job, and I'm going to be working here. And that sort of left, and then later on I recalled that after I accepted the position. So it was, uh, it was April, late April, that I was offered the job, and I took it. So being a true South Side guy, you didn't know much about Elmhurst. <laughs> no. <laughs> How did the campus strike you the first time you were on it? Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's a nice campus. It's comfortable. Um, and uh, it's, um, yeah, I mean, you, you can walk on that campus. You can feel safe. You can feel comfortable. Um, and, you know, you'd see people from the community walking around. You'd see students walking around. And it was just. Um, Sounds welcoming. It, yeah. 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 There you go. Well, PK and I grew up here, so we're used to seeing it our whole lives. Yeah. So we don't have that perspective like you and Malort did. Malort, what did you think the first time you came and checked it out? Oh, I loved it immediately. And I lived for all four years in Niebuhr Hall, which overlooks the music building Erion Hall. Right. So the entire time of me living on campus was filled with seeing music students living on a floor with because a lot of them would choose to live in that building from the proximity to where their classes were so a lot of music guys on my floor um and rick you know some of this stuff uh i lived on a floor with uh mike pavlik for a number of years and you know but yeah i mean i i concur in that uh you know it's it's a easy place to fall in love with it's got a a certain i don't know disney kind of feel to it you, you you feel transported when you're on the inside of that campus so i i totally agree i see that and i can the best part of you telling that story pete is i can see you standing there looking at the mall like that is not hard for me to believe like i love that uh, and then when i met the um the uh the music faculty then it was a no-brainer i mean they're just phenomenal people and uh i, I still remember that i did a um um, a Skype interview, and there were it was a big committee. There were twelve people on the committee. Wait, when was this? This is two thousand eleven. Skype that was, was cutting edge back then, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, <laughs> yeah, that's what it was. But the way they had it set up was um, they could see me, and the the way the reflection of things was were in the room. Um, I saw 12 silhouettes. I never saw a face until I got really? here. Yeah. Really? Which I told them after I got the job. But, yeah. but the silhouettes were very warm and welcoming. Of apparently. course they yeah, were. Yeah. yeah. But just a wonderful group of people. Don't tell Doug Beach, but I prefer to see his silhouette. <laughs> <laughs> so you obviously found some challenges when you took the job. Yep. Were there any you didn't expect, having not been a department chair like that before? Um, yeah, we, we did a lot of work on the curriculum, um, and we did a lot of work on facility. Uh, the facility really needed some, 
updating and things like that. It still does. Uh, one of the things I saw, for example, is when you walk into a rehearsal room and there's four or five different kinds of folding chairs there for people to use in a rehearsal. Well, first of all, folding chair is no good for posture when you're playing an instrument. So it's like, well, this first thing we got to do is let's get rid of this and replace them with good posture type chairs, which we did. Music stands were falling apart. We replaced all those. Buick Recital Hall, uh, when you walked on the stage, uh, every uh, recital that was done there for a number of years, you could hear the creaks on the stage when people would move around. So we were able to raise some funds where we were able to basically rebuild Buick Recital Hall. Um, we got rid of the old plastic seats that were in there, replaced them. We found a theater that was getting rid of some seats, steel seats, refurbished them, had them put in, redo the floors, pulled out the stage, um, and only to find out that it how poorly it was built. I mean, one of the one of the studs coming out of the wall when we pulled up the floor, it just fell over on its side. And yeah, it's like, this is supporting a lot of people. And there was no um, insulation in there, so some of the sound was going right downstairs to the room below it. We put in a new lighting system, new lights, new sound. Uh, it's, it was rebuilt in this old setting, and uh, it, it's really a, a great room for that, too. And we did that on a number of rooms. Was it easy to get the funding you needed to do that? Uh, easy, well, easy is a relative term. Yeah, I mean, yeah. we got the funding. Let's put yeah, it that way. Yeah. yeah. But there was support uh, to some extent. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. When you came to Elmhurst, did you teach at all also? Yeah, I taught um, I taught conducting. Uh, there, was, there was three required levels of conducting, and I taught the third level for instrumental music majors. And then uh, I taught marching band procedures here as well. So not, not being anything but an expert on conducting, I'll watch these conductors of famous symphony orchestras, and they they look like they're all doing different things. Like, yep. is it is it more an art than a science? It's an individual style, yeah. But you got to give a downbeat, no matter what. You got to give a downbeat. <laughs> Once you get them started, off you, you understand go. what he's saying, Malort? Hundred percent. So that's, that's how you start the ensemble. And, um, you know, the, the world-famous orchestras, if, if there's someone in front of them who's not doing real well or they're having a hard time following, then they'll follow the concertmaster on first violin, and that person will lead them through. Rick, we, we know what he means. You're the conductor of the podcast. Yeah, but I downbeat, I, I don't speak that language. <laughs> oh, you do. I try. <laughs> I try. So having been your your uh, career as a student and your career as an educator at big universities, mostly Illinois, but Wisconsin, and then coming to a small college. What was the difference in the experience for A, you as an educator, and B, how do you think the experience was different for the students? Um, well, I didn't do anything different as far as teaching. I still had certain expectations, and, and this is what this is what you need to do uh, because they were all based on what uh, we as a department felt needed to be done to prepare them for student teaching and then and then having their own gig. Um, as far as moving from you know a university of what was it thirty nine thousand at the time and Wisconsin was forty one thousand 
um, to Elmhurst College uh, with 3,000 people, uh, one of my first thoughts was, why hadn't I done this sooner? <laughs> I mean, really, it's, it's because the staff was so close. Um, to get things done was a lot easier. Procedures, when you're trying to add a course to a, a curriculum, it's a lot simpler to do because you can get to the people that you need to talk to all the time. It's not a procedure Well, it goes from this office, then to this office, to this committee, then to this larger group, and then maybe in a couple of years you'll get the okay. Um, it was just easier to do things um, uh, and, and move in the direction that you wanted to at Elmhurst compared to the larger places. Easier to be creative as a yeah, oh, absolutely educator. innovative, creative, whatever ideas. And that was the thing that that's how I saw a lot of my job at Elmhurst was to um, facilitate the ideas of the staff or the the faculty. You know, you come up with a new idea and you think, wow, that's this is going to work. Then you want to promote that, and then you try and find the funds uh, to to get to them so they can do that kind of work. When I think of uh, Elmhurst College or University, I think of the jazz band. Mm -hmm. um, and what was your involvement with all that during your reign there? Uh, I, I'm one of the few people in the world who's told Doug Beach no many a time. <laughs> um, That's impressive. <laughs> uh, and, and he knows that. I, we joke about that. Everybody uh, needs to be kept on track. <laughs> <laughs> um my involvement with the jazz program was the same as any of the other programs, was make sure they had uh, what they needed to do what they needed to do and then get out of their way. So the jazz festival, you know, from an outsider standpoint, seems like a big deal. Was it a big deal within the walls of the music department and, and the college? Yeah, definitely, yeah. And it's, it's the, it, I think it's the premier cultural event of the year on campus. Uh, because you're bringing in people from coast to coast um, and students and professionals from coast to coast, and you're presenting them on our campus, and that's that's a big deal. Does it have anything to do with being close to Chicago? Uh, O'Hare helps because it's easier <laughs> to get people here. But not um, really the city or um, its history? Maybe a little bit. I mean, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's just something that grew. Yeah, you know? right. And... Yeah. It's the accessibility is what makes it uh, as popular as it is. Yeah. It's legit. Do you think students changed over the course of your career? Yeah, definitely. And how? Um, their reliance on technology. And their, uh, I think that students today spend way too much time with their head down, buried into some sort of communicating device, whether it's a phone, an iPad, a computer. Um, uh, we talked early on about playing in the streets, and that's, that's the difference. It's that, that personal side doesn't seem to be um, as... Um, the, the participation in that doesn't seem to be the way it was. And go back just a few years, pre-COVID, it was better than it is now. Coming out of COVID, you had a year and a half where kids were not in school, that they were doing everything on a screen. Um, that's, that was hard on everybody. 
You know, it, the, the students, the teachers, the parents, the communities, everybody, businesses. Uh, it was just uh, coming out of that is still the, the recovery, if you will, from that is still taking place. Did that have anything to do with your decision to retire? Uh, it did. Oh. It did. It really, it really wore me out. And then I went through uh, some personal losses that really helped ink the final signature, if you will. When it came to COVID, um, obviously it affected the ability for kids to learn and probably for teachers to teach. Um, I take it in the beginning, it took a while to kind of figure it out, right? And how, how you were going to get the lessons to the kids. Right. And uh, that's when um, there were some, some programs that you could use to um, uh, communicate uh, visually at the time. But um, one of the reasons in the music department that early on we switched everything to Zoom was the quality of the sound was so much better than anything else that we could get at the time. And then others caught up really quick. But Zoom is the one that's just sort of been around and, and taken over uh, in a lot of ways for these types of things. So you can have multiple people on a meeting or multiple things like that. But you can't hold a rehearsal or anything like that on Zoom uh, or any of the others because of the delay. There might be just a tenth of a second or maybe a half a second and if you're trying to put all that together it, it obviously it doesn't work my recollection is you you did some virtual performances yep a lot but of how, editing. A lot how of editing. yeah i was gonna <laughs> say how do you do that yeah. that had to be incredible very time process. consuming and a lot of syncing up of of voices and and things instrumental so, so it wasn't in real time obviously the collaborative process it was no. edited quite a bit basically just syncing it up yeah what um what are you going to miss the most about your career whether it be at Elmhurst or Illinois or Wisconsin I don't know I mean I taught for 39 years um and uh I did 30 years at the collegiate level and and I had opportunities to do so many different things um um the thing I miss from Illinois is the British Brass Band. That was a fun group um, of fantastic musicians every time I had them. And um, uh, But I've had opportunities to, uh, I did a couple of concerts with the Illinois Brass Band based out of Arlington Heights. And uh, uh, there's those opportunities still come. You know, I've got a couple of things set up for the spring now where I'll be either guest conducting or judging and things like that. So I'm still involved in the activity. Uh, I'm not going to miss the day-to-day um, administrative things. Um, and that goes for Elmhurst, Illinois, um, Wisconsin, when I taught in Colorado. I mean, there's just that administrative part yeah. seems to grow all the time in education. So if you're willing, I'd like to take you to a tough place. Um, you know, one of the one of the tragedies you've had recently, you lost your brother and you you, you told me I, I've known you for several years and I didn't even know that your brother was a, a person that a lot of people know. But you told me a story about your brother and um, he was a reporter for various outlets, including CNN. And 
he broke a really important story a number of years ago. And if you're willing to talk about that, I'd appreciate it if you would. Yeah, Drew is um, the the senior investigative reporter for CNN um, for seven, 18 years. Uh, he was at KCBS before that and then in Seattle um, and a couple places before that. Um, but he he is one of those people that when um, – like the, the priest who did his funeral, he said, the thing about Drew, if, if, if you saw him in the room, the thing you never wanted to see was him coming at you with a microphone because <laughs> uh, he had you at that point. He had done his research, and, and he was really good about that. Um, and, I mean, he, he was awarded uh, four Emmys uh, for national reporting, uh, Edward R. Murrow Awards, and he won uh, two Peabody Awards in his career. I mean, Peabody Awards, that's the highest one in investigative reporting you can get, uh, or in reporting. And uh, one of the, the Peabody Awards that, that he earned uh, was for um, the exposure uh, that he found with the scheduling of um, um, veterans in VA hospitals and the problem that was existing that there were these secret lists of people uh, that were just not getting the appointments or the treatment that they needed uh, in a timely fashion. People died who were on those lists and they were, you know, the, the various ways that it was sort of covered up and not done. And uh, the result of his investigation was it went up to the Obama White House and there were federal and um, uh, institutional changes that were made to uh, that were put in place because of the work that he did uh, to expose the problems that were existing in the VA, and they were they were bad, and it it was legislative and uh, presidential orders that were taking place as a result of his work. And I I would suggest that anybody who's listening to this Google's Drew Griffin and the VA and read some of the stories that are out there on the internet, uh, especially on CNN's website about the work he did and how he, he worked in particular with a lady on that story, as I recall, yeah. who in ended Arizona. up being, you know, she was, she was an underground whistleblower in the beginning, but she ended up coming on camera and uh, uh, his work with her is really what got that. Yep. The changes made at the VA. And so uh, we should all be grateful for that and for all our, our veterans doing for what Drew did for the veterans. So uh, we're, we're feeling for you, and uh, thanks for sharing that story with with me initially and then with our listeners. So and There's a lot of things he did that, that made things better for a lot of people. Uh, all that, that stuff with the Uber drivers, that was his uh, exposure uh, a few years ago. Um, the stuff with, uh, with uh, Trump University. Uh, that was uh, another story that he won an Emmy Award for that one. Um, there were a lot of things like that over the years. And it sounds like there's a lot of successful folks from the South Side, regardless of what happened with Malort. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's fair. <laughs> You're talking about the drum major of the armpit orchestra? Come there's, on, man. The dump, we're, dump major. We're literally the most famous orchestra in town, too. <laughs> So let's let's get into your your personal life a little, if we may. Um, do you plan to stay in Elmhurst in your retirement for yeah, a while? For now, for now, yeah, and maybe long term. I don't know. Just right now, we like it here, and uh, 
Uh, you said you have a daughter at ISU? Yeah, she's yeah. got a few more years to go, so we're definitely not going to move before she's done. She's the youngest? There. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Um, and she's a music business major. Okay. Uh, she's got her own uh, radio show at WZND, in, uh, uh, which is the campus radio station, and does two spots a week. The voice of the Redbirds. That's, she, <laughs> there, there she is. You know, and she loves That's it. That's neat. You, you, you did radio with uh, Elmhurst, didn't you? WRSE 88.7 on your dial. So uh, tell us about your family, your wife, your kids. Uh, my wife is a civil engineer who runs um, the online master's program in civil and environmental engineering at the University of Illinois, um, which as of yesterday was ranked the top uh, uh, online master's program in the country for the fourth year in a row is she wow. in champaign or in she's, illinois or she's, chicago I mean. she's here okay. and she runs it uh for champaign yep oh wow Interesting. and it's uh and she'll go down to champaign um once a month or so and but most of it's done online wow. and she does uh, all the work with um uh the, the people who do all the tech work for the classrooms and things like that it's all done Where'd you meet her? Down at Illinois? I met her at Illinois. So she, her degree's from Illinois? Yep. Congratulations on having a civil wife. <laughs> her master's is in uh, library and information sciences, too. So she's Oh, wow. From Illinois? From Illinois. So she, the civil engineering program and the, uh, um, library, the sciences? library sciences, both number one in the country. So it's, she's, it should be, and I am, too. We all are very proud of that. And, but very proud that uh, I picture your house ring very orderly. Um, except my daughter's room. Yeah, <laughs> 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 gotta have one of those. So, kids, tell us about your kids. Um, my, well, I told you about uh, Anne, who's down at uh, ISU, and um, she plays in the marching band, plays sousaphone. Nice. And um, she. Uh, that's the tuba for you. That's uh, <laughs> for you bourgeois out there. That's a tuba. That's, that's the, the big brass <laughs> instrument. <laughs> Um, and then, uh, Michael is, um, a mechanical engineer working for, uh, a company in Woodridge and they do, um, a lot of work with, uh, um, um, uh, simple term battery packs or powered, you know, remote power. Oh, that's for, never going to take off for so <laughs> many different things. And, you know, he's, but they do, they do things for, is he a U of I guy? No, he graduated from Elmhurst with a, oh, awesome. a, a dual degree, uh, a bachelor's in physics from Elmhurst and a bachelor's in mechanical engineering from IIT. I, that's nice. combo. It's a program. combo thing. Yep. Yeah. That's great. great. Is that still going on? That yeah. That's a really yeah. cool program. Yeah, that's great. Uh, it's five years. And, yeah. uh, but he got two degrees and got, employed right away and uh i mean they do they do some military work and they do some other for various companies and they're they're all over the world they're in china they're in south america they're here that's awesome um but he played in doug beach's jazz band for three years too musical as well yeah trombone Yeah. yeah and um uh and really good at it and he's got a minor in music and um yeah all all of us play brass instruments but my son Sam is—he um, graduated from the Boston Conservatory at Berkeley um, in May, this past May. Yeah. And Sam is—he's uh, in musical theater, so he did—he um, was in um, uh, 
a play in Boston when he graduated. Then he did um, West Side Story in a Boston area theater. And then he left there and he did uh, Hello, Dolly up at uh, Marriott Lincolnshire. Wow. And now he's on the national tour for uh, My Fair Lady, uh, which he's been on since um, September. So that goes through May. So right now they're in Connecticut, and then they're headed to Georgia, and then down to Florida, and then back out to the West Coast, and they'll end up in Boston for a couple of weeks in May. That's awesome. So, yeah. Have you seen that yet? Yeah, I saw it in Milwaukee. It's great. It's a great show. You know, and then you see your kid up there, you're going, holy cow, wow. Yeah. Good. That's awesome. So what what are the chances of a kid making it in that business? It's tough, right? It's tough. But uh, he's been he's he got the right training and he's been in the right place at the right time. Does he play an instrument? Euphonium, baritone. Had to ask. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody. How about your wife? Does she play an instrument? Trumpet. Wow, it's a requirement. Do you have a dog? We have a dog. Uh, Nelson is. Um, I don't know how much longer we're going to have the dog. He's fourteen and a half, uh, and moving slow. But uh, yeah. Does he play an instrument? Uh, no. That, that, that <laughs> mat thing where it looks so like a I, keyboard? Of course, in the I, middle of the night, you hear that click, 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 click. He's got to go <laughs> so out. It reminds me of a story. You remember my story with uh, Mike Pavlik? <laughs> Which one? So uh, 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 the instrument that my kid told oh, yeah. Mike Yo, that yeah, I tell, tell Please tell Pete that story. So you know, you know Mike Pavlik, yeah. a graduate of uh, Elmer's College, Elmer's University, and uh band director at, at York High School. So he used to live across the street from, from us. And he comes over one night, and uh, we're talking out on the deck, and and uh, he asked me if I play any instruments. And my daughter pipes up and says, yeah, Dad plays the farticle. <laughs> <laughs> so I wonder if the dog plays the farticle. He's got to play something, right? Well, he plays it silently, but you know when he played it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, any favorite places to vacation? Uh, Cape Cod. Yeah. Oh, really? Good one. How did that come about? Uh, we have some good friends uh, who live on the Cape, and then my brother, I have a brother in Boston. Yeah. So you spent some time when your son was out there. Uh, it was during COVID, a lot of it. Oh, so oh, we didn't okay. get to, to do a lot, but yeah, we did get out there towards the end. Of Boston's especially. a great city. Yeah. Any uh, pet projects or charities that you really support? Um they're they're growing i've have a long list of things now that i have more time on my hands there's some places i'd like to volunteer um and there's some some things that i have a great interest in um veterans is one of them um my dad being a a veteran of the army and uh, my wife's uh dad air force um and there's there's a group of people that uh, that any type of caregiver, you know, that, and, and I say that meaning that people who have dementia or Alzheimer's, um, the support that they need is one thing, but the support that their support needs is another. And that is a greater support need, in my mind, uh, that, that needs to be addressed uh, by communities everywhere. Um, because, I mean, the fact that someone can just stop remembering is a really scary thing. Um, and musically, there are there is some research going on that uh, deals with um, 
let's say that you were, um, you had uh, Alzheimer's, and you're in this beginning or mid-range part of it, um, and you have these people who are taking care of you, usually family members, they, they need some support. How can they help you? So what we found out in music is that sometimes you might hear a certain piece of music from whenever in your life that triggers something in your mind that you sort of come back for a moment. And what there's a, there's a group of, of people at different places in the country where they'll take, they'll meet with the caregivers and say, what is, what are the tunes? What, what did they listen to? What did what they really like? And then they'll put a playlist together and they'll put that on in the background. And there are times in conversation where a lot of the, the, the person, if you will, comes back and, and it's, it just helps the caregiver. It helps the whole situation. And it also helps with research that maybe there's something there that we need to take a look at and maybe find a cure for someday for Alzheimer's. I think there's an uh, amazing, have you ever seen uh, how Tony Bennett sings with Lady Gaga, but then he, you know, really has a hard time having a conversation. Right. I mean, that's an incredible difference in how he's communicating, but he he knows his his songs. You just wonder if the the part of the brain that, that deals with music interprets music whatever remembers music yeah is less affected than maybe other parts of the brain i I don't know (laughs) well actually something to that right about now i'm fascinated that you can't remember the first album you had though (laughs) well you know (laughs) wait though when when you we talk about this (laughs) it was probably share you got (laughs) you got to mention his first solo album no you got to mention ozzy osbourne who who you can't understand when he speaks, but when oh, he sure, sings, give me a burrito. He can still sing. <laughs> it's incredible. Yeah, yeah. And there, that, there's a that's lot a of music. fascinating difference there's differentiation. A, there's a lot of musicians that way. Yeah, yeah. So, any bucket list experiences or places ahead besides the E Town Lowdown? <laughs> yeah, now, well, that's, now that you check this check one off, off. Yeah. Um, even though you didn't know what it was, <laughs> there's yeah. There's, uh, I, I do want to get back to Europe. There's, I, I'd like to explore Europe more. Um, I'd like to, and not just, you know, one of the, the things I had on my bucket list that I actually did was to drive Route 66. I did the whole thing. Yeah, been, oh. there, been there, done that. It is fantastic. <laughs> yeah. And, yep. um, uh, but another. You need a car? <laughs> we, we got a guy. Uh, we had, uh, one of the things that, that we my my great uncle used to talk about, and, and he was in the Second World War. He would always, when you'd ask him what he did, he would say, "Well, my job was I was stationed in New York, and my job was in the in the evenings or up into the early morning hours. My job was to guard the Brooklyn Bridge." And I thought, okay, not much to it, and but I'm sure we had people on the coast that actually did that, so we never questioned it. So years passed, and, and he did, and then we found in a, um, a safe deposit box his discharge papers. Uh, he didn't guard the Brooklyn Bridge. He was with the American Army in North Africa, and then went into Italy, and then into Germany, and then was in the occupation forces for two years after the war, and earned a Purple Heart. Wow. And none of us had any idea. My aunts, none of us. That's Nobody. awesome. So what I would like to do is to 
look at his discharge papers, look at his his unit and things like that, and sort of trace their path. Not that you're going to find battlefields or anything, but the cities and things that they would have gone along. That's awesome. And I would like to do that as a trip. Yeah. And go on into Berlin. I love the humility that he had to just say. What's going to keep you from doing that? Anything? I just got to do the research and then then go do it. That's really neat. So when did you do Route 66? Did that in September. Really? Yeah. Where did where did you start? At the Art Institute. Here we go. <laughs> really? Yeah. You didn't start in Elmhurst? No. <laughs> and and go to out to the pier in Santa Monica? You didn't do that? Just from Elmhurst to Santa? You actually went into Chicago, unlike Malort, who started in Elmhurst and went to Santa Monica. No. He didn't, he didn't in, do the whole thing then, in, right? In, in my own defense, I know what Chicago to Elmhurst looks like. I didn't feel the need to do it again. But you take uh, you, you take Ogden Avenue, and yep. then you have, you have to get on uh, the Stevenson for a little bit. And you then stop you, at Del Rey's at all? Just for the record, I went there last week. Well, that doesn't Still count. fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Love that place. Did you go see aliens down in New Mexico or anything on the way? No, no, but we did. We did do side trips into Chaco Canyon and in, um, and then down to Sedona out of Flagstaff. And, nice. Um, and then we were going to stop in um, uh, what's it called? Uh, oh, the type of pine tree. Um, Ponderosa pine. I no, it's a. Uh, it's even a national park um, in California. Douglas fir. Oh, I know you're talking about. You're talking about in. Uh, where my son was stationed, 29 Palms, just south of there. Yeah. Uh, cha- uh, something, tr- Joshua Tree. Joshua Tree. Yeah. So, it, but off of Route 66, it was like an hour and a half off the route. And by then you're going, well, you know, we're you're we, almost there. We could, we could just pop this out and be done. Uh-huh. And so rather than spend hours driving in and out and then a few hours there we decided well we'll just we'll catch joshua tree some other time you know but we wanted to see the trees so when we left uh santa monica and we were coming back we came through the mojave desert and that area on your way up to las vegas and you go through utah and and (laughs) we saw i would say i don't know millions of joshua trees along the route it was like we didn't miss mm-hmm. anything it's a look at no. this there's forests of joshua trees everywhere yeah there's like, joshua trees everywhere it's a beautiful drive i mean this and this history is fantastic if you like that well lord you want to take us out with our last and favorite question oh. i'd be more than happy to do that so uh before i do that i'd like to uh, let you know pete that normally our guests on the lowdown receive a parting gift and for you, your parting gift is that Rick is going to take you to the original Rainbow Cone. Well, been wow. There, I've been there many no. times. <laughs> I've been there once, <laughs> about two years ago. That's, uh, that, was, that was about a five-minute drive from our house growing up. No doubt. So the question that we conclude with when we have a guest on our show is uh, this question. And the one thing you cannot answer is your spouse, because that's what everyone's cliche to answer would be to this question. Okay, so you're not allowed to pick your spouse. This ought to be good. <laughs> oh, yeah. So you are in a foxhole, and you need to pick one person to be in that foxhole with you to help you get out of the situation you're in in the foxhole. Who's that one person that you want, that you can't live without, that has to be in there to help you get out of the foxhole? Survive. To survive. Well, I won't say Marianne. Um, right. Because <laughs> that'd still be wrong yeah. <laughs> to some people. 
Wow. It could be somebody that somebody worked that's, with that's no somebody longer we, we alive. With. Could be we don't have to know him, although you might want to explain that. But who would it be? It'd be a, 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 my friend on. Um, uh, well, actually, it would have been my brother. Um, but I have a friend on Cape Cod. I would he would be the one. And why? Because I can count on him with any thought, or I, I trust him with everything that I know and who I am. That's a friend right there. And are you going to send a link to the show to him? Sure. Awesome. And, and actually, based on what I read about your brother, I'd, I'm, I'm tempted to have your brother. I mean, sounds like a yeah. great man. He was. Yeah. He was. Pete, thanks for joining us tonight. I hope hope this wasn't uh, too much of an imposition. I hope you enjoyed yourself. No, I mean, like we talked about earlier, we've been trying to do this for a couple years Three years, now. yeah. Yeah, and we finally. COVID got in the way. And... Yeah. And then life. Yes. <laughs> Yes. uh, Well, I'm glad we finally made it happen. Thanks for being here. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. The E-Town Lowdown brought to you by the wonderful folks at the Elmhurst Armpit Orchestra featuring the biggest bass drum in the world at nine feet in diameter. Yes, you heard that right. Nine feet in diameter. This has been a special presentation of the E-Town Lowdown.